Well, it is a joy to gather together, isn't it? And to sing songs of, of this season. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're beginning a series in the Gospel of Matthew after finishing uh, the, the study through the book of Daniel. We are now in the Gospel of Matthew, which I am uh, very excited about and I have welcomed uh, this morning. So it's good to be back in a gospel and being confronted with Jesus. And so this morning we will be looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And we'll read that in, a, in, in just a minute. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, but but if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you're in this world and aware of, of kind of trends and, and, and things that are happening, there's been a recent increase, at least in our culture, in the amount of uh, fascination or interest concerning one's ancestry, concerning your, your lineage. In fact, one article that was dated all the way back in 2012, uh, a, a University of Michigan anthropologist said that genealogy is said to be America's second most popular hobby. And that was back in 2012 when Ancestry.com was, was sold for just over, I think, a, a million dollars, which now it's, it's exploded and there's more than Ancestry.com. And that makes sense. Historically, in the past, one's lineage was, was fundamental to the kind of what path you're going to take in life. So if, if you're the son of a farmer, you are probably going to be a farmer. If you're the son of a, a miller, you're going to be a miller. So knowing your, your lineage, it, it set your path. But in today's world, that's not really the case. And so the question is, well, why, why is there this rise in interest and fascination with one's ancestry? And I realize that there are probably multiple answers, but, but two at least I want to mention is one, the first one has to be a recognition that we are, in a pretty significant way at least, products of our past. And so we've come from somewhere. So when we find out names and dates and, and ge- geographical locations of our ancestors, we feel like in, one, in some sense we are finding out about who we are and who we really are. That we haven't really changed by finding out someone's name or, or that we're related to maybe George Washington. We haven't really changed, but we feel like, oh, now I know myself. So, so, so we're, we're, we want to know about our past because maybe that, that will make us feel more whole. And uh, the second reason I'll mention, and one that this article specifically mentioned, is the sense of connectedness that's, that, that, that's fleeting in our world that's possible through this type of research. And, and here's what the article says, quote, as the world grows more crowded and anonymous, Tracing ancestry allows people to feel more connected to others. Sites like Ancestry.com allow people to find distant cousins that they never knew existed. It continues, we live in a society of millions to hundreds of millions of people, most of whom are strangers to us. If all of a sudden you're a fourth cousin of someone, it creates a sense of connectedness that you might not have had before. And so, so we want to feel connected and, and we, we, we figure out or we, we understand, we, we uncover these, these webs of connection. It's not uncommon, in fact, to hear about uh, individuals or to read stories of, of long lost relatives, whether siblings or cousins or parents and children who have been reconciled through this type of research. And it's amazing. And I know, I know few people who that has actually happened to. And it's a wonderful experience. But my point in, in bringing up all of this is that our, our increased fascination with ancestry and genealogy is because we want to know who we are and how we might be connected to those that we don't know at the time. And I say this because as we turn to the Gospel of Matthew in the first 17 verses, we're, we're going to find a genealogy. It's, it's a list of names. And it's not just any genealogy. It's the genealogy of Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. It's, it's a list of generation after generation. It, it traces Abraham down to the Messiah, to Jesus. And the purpose 
of this genealogy here in Matthew's gospel, the reason he begins with this list, it's not just to give you a, a list of historical names that you can know, oh, Jesus' great-great-grandfather was this person, or his great-great-great-great-grandmother was this. That, that's not his point. Instead, Matthew is giving us this introduction. It's a selective introduction. He's doing so because he's preparing us for the narrative that follows. This genealogy traces the royal ancestry of Jesus confirming his legitimacy as the promised savior and king who will bring the history of Israel to its climax. And so this genealogy, it starts with Abraham, but it ends at Jesus, not because Jesus is the one who sent $99 to 23andMe to get his DNA tested. Like if you do that, you'll get the DNA, you'll get the family tree that stops at you. That's not what's happening here. It stops at Jesus because he's the climax and purpose of all that came before him. So instead of him looking back and finding meaning and purpose from knowing who, who his ancestors were, It's actually all those who came before him who find their purpose and are better understood in light of him who's come. So Matthew begins his gospel with this genealogy because he wants to tell us who this Jesus really is. And it's at the beginning of this section of Matthew's gospel, there's a section that's gonna continue and we'll see it's focusing on the identity of the king who came to establish God's kingdom. That's Matthew's theme is the king. So it starts here, but the next next week with, with the birth narrative with a visit of, of the, the angel and, and then the following chapter, the visit of the Magi. They're, they're coming. Who, who, where is this king of the Jews? We, we saw his star, right? Matthew is introducing this king who's born. And then we see, we'll see later in chapter two, King Herod, who wants to destroy the king, the rival king. And so all of this Matthew is doing so that we are convinced at the outset of his gospel that this is the gospel of the king, that the king has come. And so as we read this first section, we go into it remembering Jesus is the main idea. He's the legitimate savior and king. He's the fulfillment of all the expectations of, of the Old Testament, the, the Messiah figure, the, the king who has come. It's Jesus. And so we, we ought to come into these verses recognizing that Jesus is being made much of. So, so let me read this lineage because after we go through this lineage, the purpose we'll see in Matthew 1 through 17 is make sure not only that we know who he is, but it's, it's actually in knowing him that we can truly know who we are and how we are connected to each other. So, so let's, let's read. You can follow along as I read this genealogy from Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king." And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Well, let's, let's pray as, as we continue. Now, Father, this morning I pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things out of your word. I pray that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And I pray, Lord, that you would awaken our hearts to love Christ the King, to sing of his great mercy and salvation, and to proclaim his excellencies. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, so the outline here, we're not going verse by verse. Some of you I know are probably relieved to know we're not going to go name by name through here. The outline, I've simply, this, this, this uh, genealogy, there, there's three movements, three fundamental or foundational movements that, that this makes. So instead of going verse by verse through every single individual here, though that would be beneficial, I mean, it would certainly aid our understanding of the Old Testament. We're not going to do that. We're just going to look at these three main movements that form kind of the foundation of this genealogy. Because in understanding these movements, we're going to get a clear picture, I think, of what Matthew's trying to do here. So here's the three main points, the three movements that this genealogy makes in order to establish who Jesus is. There's first, we're going to see that these verses establish that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. That's first we'll see. And then second, we'll see that these verses establish that Jesus is the son of David, and then finally, we'll see these verses establish that the coming of Jesus marks the end of exile. So the seed of Abraham, the son of David, and the end of exile. Those will be the outline points that we work through uh, for, for the rest of our time together. So first, let's see how these verses establish that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Okay, so we see there in verse 1. Verse 1, Matthew endeavors to give us the book of the genealogy or, or the genesis of Jesus, the beginning of Jesus, who is the Christ. And so Matthew, there in verse 1, makes, makes it clear we have to understand that to, to know who Jesus is, we have to understand his relationship to King David and to Abraham. So these are the three individuals that are listed, and understanding Jesus requires understanding his relationship to David and to Abraham. And so David and Abraham are key figures. They would have certainly been on Mount Rushmore of Israel, wouldn't they? These are two historic figures, central figures. Maybe you could throw Adam and Moses on the Mount Rushmore of Israel, but, but Matthew doesn't care about Moses and Adam because they don't fit his purposes here. Instead, he wants us to focus in on David and Abraham. And he highlights these two men because he wants to show how the birth of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, connects the two main, I would say almost most important themes of the entire Old Testament, which is that the seed of Abraham is going to bless all nations, and that the son of David is going to rule on David's throne forever. These are the two themes that run through the Old Testament that Matthew is saying they come to their head in the Messiah. And so the fulfillment of God's promised salvation are now realized in the coming of this Christ, who is the son of David and the seed of Abraham. And so these two great covenants, that of Abraham and of David, come to full expression in Jesus. 
And the purpose of this genealogy is to make that evident. So he makes that clear by verse 1. Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And so Matthew wants us to know from the start that the birth of Christ is the birth of the Messiah, the promised one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so he starts with Abraham, and he traces this line through Abraham. If you're familiar with Luke's lineage in Luke chapter 3, I believe it is, Luke starts with Adam, but that doesn't serve Matthew's purpose. He starts with Abraham. And he traces the line from Abraham down to David. And as, as you read just this first movement from verses 2 there through verse 6, one thing to note is that from generation to generation, as we read these names, we're reminded of just how fragile, at least from a human's perspective, how fragile the promise was. And so you think about Isaac, the, the next one mentioned, Abraham to Isaac. It's not like, oh, Abraham and Sarah got married, then they had a son nine months later, and that, that was that. It's not as though these generations pass seamlessly. We know the story of Isaac, who, who was birthed by those as good as dead. And we see Jacob, who, who actually stole the blessing from Esau. And Jacob then blesses his sons. And it's not Joseph who receives the, the greatest blessing, but it's instead Judah. So Jacob or Joseph takes center stage in, in the book of Genesis, but it's Judah who receives the long and positive blessing in Genesis 49 whose line, we are told, will possess the scepter forever and to whom the obedience of the peoples will come. That's a promise to Judah. And so Matthew is tracing this royal line, the kingly line. We know Judah, whose son Perez, comes to him through tragic and sinful actions by him and by his daughter-in-law. And then through Boaz and Ruth and their son Obed, and we know the story there, and all the way down to David and his father Jesse, which if you remember, David had seven older brothers, all of whom were more fit to be king from the human perspective. And so in all these generations, we see human event after human event where the promise appears to be in jeopardy, where one small misstep will will lead to extinction. One small misstep and the promise to Abraham is lost forever. But at the end of it all, we see the promise continues. The stream keeps flowing. And we're reminded, aren't we, just from this first section that the human role in the continuation of God's promises doesn't thwart God's purposes. It can't. God's plan, God's purposes, God's promise will continue. And Matthew wants us to know that the son of Abraham, the promise that was made to Abraham, has finally come to its appointed end in the seed of Abraham, Christ the Lord. And so it's important for Matthew's readers to know that Jesus is in fact from the line of Abraham because if he wasn't, he wouldn't and couldn't be the promised one. And so Matthew wants to know, hey, the promise made to Abraham, it's now been fulfilled. This is the seed, not plural, singular seed of Abraham. And so in establishing Jesus as the fulfillment, he's saying Jesus has come to bring about the blessings of all nations, right? Do you remember the promise to Abraham? Through you, all nations are going to be blessed, Abraham. Through your seed, the nations are going to be blessed. And so Christ is the seed of Abraham who has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, as we'll sing. And so this is the seed of Abraham, Matthew wants us to know. But it's not just that he wants us to know he's the seed of Abraham. Second, he wants us to know that Jesus comes as the son of David. Now, though Abraham is important, David is the primary person that Matthew wants you and me to understand Jesus in light of. He wants us to know that Jesus is the son of David. That's why I think David is mentioned first in verse 1. He's the son of David. The Christ is the son of David who's the seed of Abraham, but it's David 
who received the royal promise. If you remember uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, the greatest king of Israel, there, there's this whole dispute where David says, I'm going to build the Lord a house. I feel guilty because I'm living in this really nice palace, but I've never built the Lord a house. So I'm going to build the Lord a house. And the Lord says to David through the prophet, you're not going to build me a house. I don't need a stinking house from you. I don't dwell in houses. Don't build me a house. In fact, he turns the table. He says, David, I'm going to build you a house. It's not going to be just this physical palace. I'm going to build your line, establish your kingdom forever. And he makes this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm going to raise up your offspring, David, who's going to come from your body, from your line, and I'm going to establish his kingdom. And he's the one who's going to build a house for my name, and I'm going to establish the throne of his kingdom, not just for a long time, but forever. And the Lord continues, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, the Lord says to David. Your throne shall be established forever. That's what the Lord says to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So this, this royal promise made to King David was, was, was the, the foundation of the hope of Israel. Now, some of the promises were certainly fulfilled in David's son Solomon, but it's very clear that not all of them were. Because remember, yes, yeah, Solomon took the throne at the height of, of, of the, the kingdom, but, but one generation after Solomon, what happens to the kingdom? It splits. It's divided. They're not great. They're not unified. In fact, it wouldn't be long until they'd be exiled. They don't have a throne. They don't even have a temple or their own city at that point. And so Solomon was not the promised son of David. And so this Davidic promise was still lacking its complete fulfillment. And this promise is, is what, what's, what's propelling Israel forward in their anticipation. They're waiting. When's David's son going to come? Through exile and then even in return. They, they're back in their land and they rebuild the temple, but it's not the same. They still don't have David's son ruling. And so Matthew wants to make perfectly clear that Jesus is the promised king. Not only the son of Abraham, but the son of David. The one born in Bethlehem is the Messiah, Matthew wants you to know. He's the promised son of David. In the coming of Jesus, the forever Davidic messianic king has arrived, Matthew is saying here in the first chapter. And what's fascinating, one of the ways that Matthew highlights the role of David, he doesn't just list him first in verse 1, but what he does is he organizes the entire genealogy in a very specific way. So there's three sections and though there, there's lots of names, there are actually generations missed and left out in this genealogy from Abraham to, to Christ. And he takes out, leaves out certain individuals and, and generations because he wants this to be structured very specifically. Did you, did you catch in verse 17 at the conclusion what it said? So in all generations from Abraham to David, so that's the first movement, there are 14 generations. David to the deportation, so David to exile, 14 generations. From exile to Christ, 14 generations. What's the theme there? 14, 14, 14. So he arranges this in, in groups of 14. Now, that's not just because that's the number that he wore when he was playing football in high school. That's not just his favorite number. right? 14 is a specific number, significant number. And what, what most commentators say that Matthew is doing is he, he's, he's using this, this way of Hebrew understanding called gematria, which takes numbers signified by letters as significant. And, and so what, what you get is when you take David, so Hebrew, there, there weren't vowel points, they were added later. So there's just, he, Hebrew words, there's just the consonants. And so if you take David, the D, the V, and the D, and, and you assign Hebrew alphabet let numbers to them, when they're combined, it adds up to 14. And so he's arranged this list 
into three groups of 14 to make a theological point, namely that Jesus, the end point of this genealogy, the the purpose for this genealogy is the son of David. He wants us to know that David is the promised king. And also, did you notice at the end of verse 6 that Jesse was the father of David the king? And there's lots of other kings in this list. But David is the one who's identified as the king. None of the other kings are king so-and-so or king so-and-so. It's David. He wants us to know that David's son, the royal promise to David, is now been fulfilled. Among all of Israel, David was unique. He was the one to whom God made a promise, a covenant. And ever since King David's death, Israel had been wondering, is is David's son coming soon? Is this the one? Is this one who's going to rule on David's throne forever? Is this the root of Jesse who's come to rescue and deliver us? And so that question, in the face of that question, Matthew at the outset of his gospel says loud and clear, this is the one. This is the one we've been waiting for. Which leads to the final point there, the end of exile. The coming of Jesus marks the end of exile. So so this genealogy, it doesn't only highlight two significant figures, Abraham and David, but also highlights the exile. So so, so it moves from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, then from the exile to Christ. So so the exile takes a main role, plays a key part in this genealogy. And so when we think about exile, having just come through a sermon series on the book of Daniel, we ought to be quite familiar with the deportation of Babylon. They were exiled. God's people, the Israelites, were were exiled. They were conquered and, and they were taken away. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and and then he takes the the cream of the crop back to Babylon. And the Israelites, not not just to Babylon, but but also the Assyrians, both the northern and southern kingdoms, Israel and Judah, would be exiled. They'd be taken, driven from their land. They were conquered. Their temple was destroyed. And so they're, they're left because of their sin, without a place, without a temple, And though the Old Testament is filled with prophet after prophet warning and and promising Israel, you you need to return, you need to return, you need to forsake forsake these foreign gods, return to the Lord, repent. Though though warning after warning, the reality is that the Old Testament narrative actually ends after the book of Malachi with God's people in exile, really. Israel experiences what is sometimes known as the silent years, the time between this old and new, this intertestamental period where God appears to be silent. No prophets, no revelation, nothing. Just silence. And even though, yeah, we realize they were able to return to their land, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. The glory wasn't the same. Things weren't better. The rebuilding of the city and the temple, the return to, to, Israel, to Jerusalem, it didn't fix the problem. And so the Israelites, they were living in exile. And the cause of exile, as we saw in Daniel, was the sin of the people. And even once they returned, the sin of the people still plagued the Israelites. So so in this very real sense, exile was the permanent address of the Israelites. They were left waiting. And and they're asking themselves in in this period of silence, has our covenant making God forgotten us? Has he given up on us? Have we gone too far? Have we out-sinned the mercy of the Lord? Has the royal line of David somehow gotten derailed? Has, has the Messiah, has his, his announcement got lost in the mail? Have we forfeited the promise to Abraham? And so, and so all of these questions, Israel is, they're wanting to know what, what's happening. 
Do we have any hope anymore? Do we have a covenant-keeping God or not? And so the curiosity and interest with which the readers of Matthew's gospel would, would follow this last movement from exile to Christ, they, they would be wanting to know, what, what happened? What happened after exile? And so he joins Abraham to David to exile in order to show that Jesus, in his appearing, in his coming, the silence has come to an end. Exile's over. The king is here. That's his point. And so many of the names in this final section, they're they're unfamiliar to us. This last section covers a period of about 500 years, and we don't have much biblical information. A few names are are mentioned, but but most of them are not. And so Matthew's gotten this list from from some other source that that accounts the, the, the time in exile. But he does so, and the fact that we don't have much information about these names doesn't mean that they're not important. Instead, I would say, in fact, they have the opposite effect, which is to say that the long line of the Messiah was being preserved and propelled forward even in the midst of silence. So even when we don't really know what's going on, we know the line is being preserved, that God is maintaining and preserving the line of David, even in exile. Even from the generations of exile to Christ, the line of Abraham, the line of David, was still moving forward towards its appointed end. And so we have here in this genealogy, the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel, we have a summary, if you will, of the history of God's people. We have the first patriarch, Abraham, the one who started it all, the father of the Hebrews. And then we have the man who sat on the throne at the height of the kingdom, the greatest king of Israel, King David. Then it traces to the low point of the kingdom, the deportation to Babylon. We have God's chosen people in exile, punished because of their unfaithfulness, because of their rebellion, because of their sin. And in this retelling of the history of God's people, in this genealogy, Matthew traces the line from beginning to high point to low point. And it's there from the low point, from the point of exile, that Matthew brings us to the final stop on his timeline. From exile and sin and rebellion, Matthew brings the genealogy to its appointed end to an otherwise unknown couple, a man named Joseph and a woman named Mary. And it's this couple, unknown, unlikely, from this couple would come a baby into the world. They would welcome a baby into the world. In many ways, like the millions of other baby boys who have entered into the world before he came and have come since he came. So in many ways, like all other boys, but in one particular way, this baby boy was unlike any other baby that had ever or will ever be born. This boy is the son of David, the seed of Abraham, who would be called Jesus. Why? We'll read it earlier. Because he would save his people from their sins. And so Christ came. He was born to deliver God's people. And so I just have two points of application as we close. From this genealogy, we see first, first point of application, God keeps his promises. God is faithful. His word is true. He keeps his promises. This genealogy, these 42 generations, they loudly proclaim God keeps his word. He preserved and propelled the promises from generation to generation to generation to generation, from Abraham to David, through exile to Jesus. God kept his word. The genealogy tells us that when God says something, 
It's going to be accomplished. When God makes a promise, it will come to pass. God says things, makes promises, and he keeps his word. And so the birth of Jesus, the season of Advent that we're remembering, is about God fulfilling his promises. And the certainty of God fulfilling his promises, of keeping his word, is something that goes for every single one of his promises. Not just the birth of the Messiah, the son of David, the seed of Abraham. The reality is God can't lie. God can't go back on his word. He can't fail to keep what he says and promises. These are impossible for God. So, so as a dad of, of four young kids, sometimes I'll make comments without thinking about them. Yeah, yeah, we can watch a movie later. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll throw the football tomorrow. And, and to my shame, sometimes I say, well, daddy can't do it. I know I said that we could, but, but I can't. Now, sometimes there's good reason, but sometimes there isn't. But God's not like me, friends. When God says something, he does it. When he declares something, it's true. When God speaks, it can be trusted. When, when God addresses us, we can believe it. So, so, friend, are you anxious? Are you anxious? Do you doubt God's love for you? Do you doubt that your sins can actually be forgiven? Do you wonder, is there really life with God after I close my eyes in death? Is there really a, a second advent Somewhere in the future, is Jesus really coming back? I mean, all of these things, God has spoken to address your doubts and your fears. And he says, don't be anxious. Lift up your eyes. Look at the, look at the flowers. Look at the birds. God cares for them. He clothes them and provides for them. And you're much more valuable than that. So, so don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or drink. But here's what you do. Seek the kingdom. And everything else is going to be added to you. Don't be anxious. And did you wonder, do your circumstances cause you to doubt, well, God can't love me. He's taken this from me. He's put me through this. I'm currently going through this. Well, well, God says, hey, I've put my love on display. And it's displayed in the picture of a, a man beaten and bloodied on a cross for you. Do you doubt whether God loves you or not? He sent his son. What else will he withhold from you? He sent his son, his only son. He's spoken, I love you. Maybe you're so dirty. How could my sins be forgiven? Do you know what I've done? Do you know my secret thoughts? Do you know my past? The Lord has said, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins because it's not on your repentance, it's on the death of Christ on the cross. Your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross on your behalf. The, the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands, the, the, the page after page after page record of debt that stood against you and me has been set aside, nailed to the cross on Jesus Christ, your substitute. God says your sins are forgiven. Why can't you believe it? And I could go on and on. When God speaks... We can take it to the bank. God is trustworthy. He keeps his word. He keeps his promises. He is faithful. And the last point of application here, which is good news for everyone listening, is simply this. The king saves sinners. The king saves sinners. That's what Matthew will, will, will make clear throughout this gospel. The gospel of the kingdom, it's not the gospel for the neat and clean people. It's for the sinners, it's for the sick, the needy, the outcast, the down and outs. Jesus came as king on a rescue mission for broken people like you and like me. Are, are you broken? Do you know your brokenness? Do you ruin relationships? 
Do you fail to keep promises that you've made? Do you never get, a, you never get through your checklist and feel worthless in, in some ways? Good news is Jesus came for people like you and like me. He came to seek and save the lost, the broken, the outcast, the down and outs. There's no one who falls outside of the saving realm of King Jesus. The king and his kingdom are for all people. And so maybe your family line, you feel like that, that disqualifies you. Well, Matthew says, no, it doesn't. The king came for all people. The, the son of David, the Messiah, had to come from David's line so that he could offer salvation to people from every line. Your line doesn't disqualify you. And we see this in the individuals that are listed here. Now, now this, this genealogy, if, if you go through and you look at every name, there's some mentioned here that, that we may think shouldn't be here. So, so like if, if you apply for a job and, and you put together your, your resume, depending on how long you've been working, you may, may not include some areas of experience. Maybe they're not applicable or maybe they don't look bad on a resume. Right? So, so there's some names here that we're like, why are they in this resume? Like if this is the son of Abraham, the, the, the son of David, oof, I, I'd have left that out. He left people out, but he didn't leave some people out. And so Matthew, in listing out the genealogy of the Messiah King, there's people who wouldn't have been the most helpful in terms of qualifying him to be the Messiah, but that's exactly the point. Like I just said, there are no qualifications. The Messiah had to come from the line of David so that he could save people from any and every line. I mean, some people spend a whole sermon on this one point. I just want to mention it as we close. Something that Matthew does that is out of the ordinary and clearly intentional, is that he includes women in this genealogy. Now, now there's some Chronicles genealogies that does mention some women, but, but Matthew specifically lists four women, five if you count Mary. And if you're going to list the, the, maybe the, 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 the Mount Rushmore of Israelite women, maybe it'd be Sarah or Rachel or Leah or some of these, but, but those aren't the ones listed. Instead, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, fourth one isn't even mentioned by name. She's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, Bathsheba. And so why does Matthew include these four? I mean, the genealogy could be read without them. The line would keep going without mentioning them. But instead he mentions them. He mentions the, 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 the woman Tamar who deceptively seduced her father-in-law and Rahab whose most well-known career path was that of a prostitute and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who is only really known in Scripture as Solomon's mom because of an affair with King David. And so he mentions these four women. And, and just to be clear, just to be clear, every single man on this list would fall into the category of sinner. Okay, so it's not as though, hey, David was fine and Judah was fine. No, no, they were evil men. They were evil, sinful men. And we could spend a whole sermon going through the, the wicked men in this list. So I'm not, I'm not pinpointing these women because they were worse. But Matthew includes these women because they are, at least from a, from a lineage standpoint, they are of questionable character. Or at least at some point in their lives they were. And Matthew wants to show that the king came from a line of messed up people in order to save the line of messed up people. There is no non-messed up person except for the son of David, the Messiah. So even the Messiah came from a broken line. And so he came to save all people, not just the Jews. That's another thing that people mention about these these four women is is they're not Jews. They're they're outsiders. And so Matthew here in in the, the outset introduction of his gospel, he's saying that the gospel is for all people. 
not Jews only. He's saying this, this gospel of the kingdom, it's, it's for sinners. Matthew wants you to know and me to know that we live in a sinful world and, and Matthew is writing about the king who is the king of grace and whose kingdom is for those who know their need of the Savior. One commentator says, these women were outsiders. They were sinners, outcasts, foreigners, whom God used to carry forward his, carry forward his saving purpose. They foreshadow the poor and lonely, the outcasts, and ultimately the Gentiles who will respond to God's salvation. And so the good news for us here today is that the king came to save sinners. And so if you're here this morning and you, you have responded to Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus, you've turned from your sins and you've, you've embraced Christ by faith and you're united to him and you're, you're counted righteous in him and your sins are forgiven through him, if that's you, rejoice that God sent his son. And that you have that great hope. Let, let this season remind you of the great hope. And, and may we endeavor to love Jesus more. May, may we endeavor to treasure him more fully. And may we follow him more completely. May, may this text promote us to a greater love for our Messiah. But, but some of you here are not following King Jesus. You haven't heeded the call of the kingdom. You haven't denied yourself and taken up your cross to follow the king. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, if you haven't repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, if you haven't embraced Jesus by faith, the good news for you here today is that he is accepting citizens always. He would welcome you with arms open wide into his kingdom. Whatever your past is, whatever disqualifications you think you have, the king came to save sinners and he invites you to follow him today. He was born to die and he died so that you could be part of his kingdom, part of his family. And so I would just call you. I would call you with the authority of God himself. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Embrace him. What, what, what an opportunity. Christmas. Embrace the Messiah who was born. Let, let's pray as we close.